right, so hello everyone. Uh, my name is Tatiana. I'd like to welcome everyone to the NUS Middle East Institute's flagship series, Middle East 101. Uh, thanks for joining us today for the 10th lecture in the series. Uh, so here in the, at the Middle East Institute, the question always on our mind is that whatever happens in the Middle East will affect us here in Southeast Asia. Uh, we've, had a lot of, we've, uh, we've had a long history of contacts between the Middle East and Southeast Asia. Uh, and now, thanks to technology, uh, the contacts are denser and becoming more frequent than in the past. Uh, so this gives developments in the Middle East and immediacy in Southeast Asia. Uh, so it's important for us to understand the broader implications of Middle East issues for our own region. This week, we turn to the topic of religion, which is another one of the areas in which Middle East has influenced our region. Uh, we are seeing an increasingly complex religious landscape where religious identities and practices can be easily influenced by foreign ones. In fact, both uh, Islam and Christianity, uh, both major religions with sizable followings in Southeast Asia, uh, Middle Eastern religions in their origins. And for both cases, political and social attitudes and questions of identity in this region have been colored by events in the Middle East. But today we'll focus on Islam in the Middle East and its impact on Southeast Asia. What has the historical interaction been between the Middle East and Southeast Asia regions? How have developments and movements in the Middle East impacted countries in Southeast Asia? How has regional political Islam been shaped by both global and local dynamics? And what do contemporary developments tell us about the broader trends in Muslim engagement in politics across Southeast Asia? We have Dr. Nosharil Sa'ad here today to speak to us on these issues. Dr. Nosharil is a senior fellow at the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, Yusuf Isha Institute, or ISIS Yusuf Isha Institute, as it's more commonly known. Dr. Nosharil received his bachelor's degree in political science and master's degree in Malay studies from the National University of Singapore. He received his PhD in international political and strategic studies from the Australian National University. His research interests include the government and politics of Indonesia, Malaysia and Singapore, contemporary Islamic thought and religious authority, as well as the influence of the Middle East in Southeast Asia. He has been extremely prolific and has written and published widely on these subjects. So I'm very glad that he could spare the time today to share with us his insights. Dr. Nosharil will speak for about 35 to 40 minutes, um, after which we'll open things up to questions from the audience. We're also taking written questions, so you can send those in via the chat function, addressed to either myself or the events team. You can send in your questions at any time during this event. So without further ado, uh, over to you, Dr. Nosharil. Uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, uh, Tatiana, for the uh, introduction. Uh, and um, thank you for inviting me once again uh, to MEI uh, to speak uh, on a very uh, important topic and a topic that's close to my heart, um, religion, Islam, and political Islam. Um, as uh, mentioned by uh, Tatiana, uh, my work deals more with uh, Southeast Asia. In particular, I look at uh, 
Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. Uh, but I also follow developments very closely in the Middle East uh, to geopolitics as well as the impact of um, Islam, not only in the Middle East, but also to this region. And so when I was invited to speak uh, on this topic, I immediately say yes. Uh, and I, I, I note that this series has been ongoing for the last few weeks. Those are very important topics. Uh, and today we're going to discuss about uh, political uh, Islam. So um, I'll just briefly go through some of the uh, socio-historical factors. As uh, Tatiana mentioned that the interactions between the Middle East and Southeast Asia has been ongoing for the longest time. Uh, but one of the first areas uh, that um, Middle East has influenced Southeast Asia was actually uh, on the religious aspect. And this is an area that uh, we will also be looking at uh, in this presentation, the early phases of Islamization. Um, <clears throat> this is, these are three main objectives of today's uh, lecture. Uh, and uh, I want to tweak it uh, to something that is very much problem-centric and uh, maybe policymakers may be interested to also uh, look at uh, this presentation because uh, it addresses some of the common perceptions and misperceptions about uh, Middle East, Islam, and Southeast Asia. Um, in particular, I want to address this whole idea and concerns uh, regarding Arabization. What does it really mean, or should we be overly concerned? Should policymakers or Singapore be overly concerned about this term Arabization? Um, secondly, I want to articulate the regional trends of Islamic resurgence. I want to look at a specific period of time that explains um, how societies behave in Southeast Asia. And I'm going to focus on three countries, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. And, uh, and thirdly, I want to identify the implications of these trends uh, on Southeast Asia as a whole. So um, for this uh, particular lecture, we'll be looking at Middle East and how it impacts three countries, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, and also Singapore. Uh, of course, Indonesia is the biggest country uh, compared to the other two, Malaysia and Singapore. And not only that, it is also the largest Muslim uh, country uh, in, in the world. Now, Malaysia is also interesting because whatever impacts Malaysia will, will have its trickled effects into Singapore as well due to language, uh, geographical, as well as cultural similarities. Uh, so we, we also want to see uh, developments in Malaysia and how it impacts Singapore. Now, Singapore is also important to study in this uh, whole political Islam or Islamic trends from the Middle East here is because we have quite a sizable number of uh, students uh, from the Singapore madrasas who actually pursue uh, the bachelor's degree in Islamic studies in the Middle East, uh, particularly um, in Egypt. There's been a long historical uh, uh, process or, uh, of interactions between the Al-Azhar University in Egypt, Cairo, 
uh, with Singapore Madrasa students and increasingly a number of students uh, studying in Jordan universities as well as uh, in the Saudi Arabian universities and how do these impact uh, Singapore Muslims and Singapore's religious discourse as a whole. I will start off by looking at giving a brief overview of the three uh, countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. Now, I know that this is a lecture on the Middle East impact in Southeast Asia, but I want to briefly explain about the three countries first to see how Islam has evolved in these three countries, what has changed and what has not changed. And then you can compare the Middle East impact into Southeast Asia. As mentioned, uh, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. 85% uh, of its population, about 255 million are Muslims. Uh, but Indonesia is not an Islamic state uh, as understood commonly today. Uh, it is not Iran, it is not Saudi Arabia. Uh, even though it's the largest Muslim country in the world, it adopts the Panchasila uh, or um, uh, even though it has this tenet of believing in uh, monotheism or one God, but it, it allows freedom of expression. Uh, we don't have, uh, for instance, Sharia laws being applied at the national level, but of course uh, they, they do uh, apply Sharia laws at some of the uh, uh, sub-national levels or in the provinces, but generally it is a secular state, but uh, symbolically, uh, the, the leaders of the country are Muslims and have always been Muslims. Uh, it is under the presidential system and in history of Indonesia, uh, all Indonesian presidents have been uh, Muslims. Uh, there are 34 provinces in Indonesia, um, but the main drivers of Islam in, in the country are the civil society groups, uh, mainly two of the largest Muslim groups in Indonesia are the Nahdlatul Ulama, mainly of the traditionalist type, and its rival, the Muhammadiyah, which scholars have defined as the modernist school of thought. Uh, even though it is seen as a religiously neutral state, it does uh, recognize six official religions, and it has uh, the Ministry of Religion, right? Uh, M-O-R-A, Ministry of Religious Affairs, uh, headed by uh, mainly uh, Muslims, okay? And uh, it also has quasi-state government bodies like the MUI, the, 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 the fatwa-making body, which is supposedly independent from the central government, but uh, it, is, it receives some form of funding from the national government. Moving on to Malaysia, it is... Um, also a Muslim majority country, but it's not as big as Indonesia. Uh, in terms of its population, 61% are Malays and Muslims. Um, why do I say Malays and Muslims? Because uh, generally in the Malaysian constitution, uh, the Malay identity is closely tied to Islam. So this is a, a unique case where you know, an ethnic category, Malay, is identified with a religious category. Um, 
the article of the constitution states that Islam is the religion of the federation, but other religions may be practiced in peace, harmony in any part of the federation. Now, if you look at the early drafters of the uh, constitution, Malaysia can be seen as a secular state generally, uh, and, and which respects um, uh, other religious groups. But uh, as the society evolve, um, there are different interpretations of this constitutional uh, 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 statement uh, and groups are saying that Islam is the official religion. So the word official is not included in the original drafters, but the way it is implemented or the way it is practiced, it assumes that you know, Islam is the, uh, the official religion. Whereas it, in actual fact, uh, I think the drafters were trying to say that Islam is symbolically the uh, the majority religion in the country, you know, headed by the Malaysian king, which oversees Islam. Uh, I think we can have, you know, Islamic rituals being conducted at a national level. Islam in the character, but I think what the the the, the later generations of Malaysians are saying that you know Islam, uh, Malaysia has become has taken the form of an Islamic state. So these are this is later developments in Malaysian society. Uh, in Malaysia, it's quite unique because we have nine royal families. They rotate every five years. One will be the Malaysian king, uh, but symbolically, the Malay rulers are in charge and are seen as custodians of Islam and Malay culture. Now, in between Singapore and, 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 and uh, sorry, in between Malaysia and Indonesia, Singapore, uh, we are slightly different here in Singapore because we are multiracial, multi-religious, we are a secular state. Um, Muslims are minorities, majority of them are Malays, similar to Malaysian case, but historically we have uh, key legislations and key institutions which oversee uh, the uh, Islamic faith and we have the institutionalization of the administration of the Muslim Law Act and we have institutions, uh, statutory boards uh, like the um, the Majlis Ugama Islam Singapura and the Sharia Courts, which mainly uh, oversee uh, Muslim affairs or the uh, personal laws. But apart from that, similar to Indonesia and Malaysia, we also have uh, NGOs um, <clears throat> and civil society groups uh, promoting uh, and overseeing Islamic uh, religious affairs of the Muslims. Now, uh, that's basically the overview of the three countries that we're looking at. Uh, and perhaps the, the following two slides here are basically my arguments. Um, what is the Middle East impact that we are looking at here? Uh, first point I want to make is that Islam that first came to this region, the Southeast Asia region, is that of a Sufi type. And it was the Sufis from Hadramaut or today's Yemen yeah, that actually brought Islam here. Of course, there's some theories that it went to via China or it went to via India, but the dominant group that brought Islam here are the Sufi type, mainly ritualistic, devotional, uh, a little bit of mystical elements. Um, and that explains why uh, certain groups and certain orientations persist today in this region. Um, there was uh, this modernist movement, if you follow Middle East Islam very carefully, in the 18th and 19th century. It happened in uh, Egypt. Uh, we have uh, the modernist movement that tries to purify religion from mysticism. It came to this region because of students moving uh, to and fro to Singapore, to Indonesia, from Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia to, 
to uh, to Egypt to study at Al Azhar University, which underwent uh, some form of reforms. Um, but when they brought back these ideas, they, there was some impact, significant impact, especially in Singapore and in Indonesia. But generally, the impact overall uh, is pretty minimal because uh, the Sufi groups or the religious elites were very much tied to the royal courts that I mentioned earlier, uh, mainly in the Malay rulers. But an important episode that we need to look at is what happened in the 1970s, uh, mainly the Islamic revivalist movement, which came from the Middle East that tries to purify religion, that tries to have a political uh, turn, uh, influencing mass society, mass mobilization, anti-Westernization, anti-secularism, anti-colonial. Uh, and uh, of course, there were different groups that promote this. Uh, and this too had an impact in Southeast Asia. Now, this, what happened in 1970s and 1980s in particular, had a deeper impact into Malay society here in this region. And what we are seeing today, right, the behavior of the community, uh, I must argue, that uh, are deeply shaped by events that happened in 1970s and 1980s. And now why is that so? It is because the drivers of uh, the Islamic revivalist groups in during this period on campuses in Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia are today um, the leaders uh, or, or no, key important players, actors that continues to shape these uh, respective countries. Uh, generally, Middle East impact has been neutral right, to Southeast Asia. Uh, when we talk about Middle East impact, we, we tend to see that it's generally a conservative impact. Actually, Middle East impact over the years in history, it could be progressive, it could be uh, conservative groups coming here. As I mentioned, in, in the early 1800s and 1900s, the modernist movement, seen as progressive movements came, it, it could have a neutral effect. Uh, but today, when we talk about the Middle East impact, generally the progressives are marginalized and there are progressive voices in the Middle East, but uh, our people here are not basically uh, looking at these figures or these ideas. Why? Um, there's another concern that I want to address is that, you know, that some people say that, you know, Arabization is coming to Southeast Asia because we use certain languages, certain words that sounds more Arabic, you know, we are forgetting the Malay culture. Uh, I, I want to argue that Middle East influence on Malay language is not new. Malay language will continue to evolve and absorbing new words and new vocabulary. Uh, so the question is, should we worry or should we not? Or are there other concerns of Arabization that we need to look at? Um, and hence, I think we have to look at generally the revivalist trends in the 1970s, but we tend to focus more on Middle Eastern impact on conservative groups here, which is a pertinent point. But at the same time, we also need to look at oh, the local drivers that actually channel this influence in this region and also at the same time promote these conservative ideas here. And we fail to see uh, the local drivers. We tend to put the blame on the Middle East, uh, but we fail to see the, the uh, domestic factors. All right, um, very quickly, uh, I know time is very limited. Um, 
just to reiterate some points, how Islam came to, the re to this region, mainly by traders from Arabs, Hadrami Arabs and Yemen. Uh, some would argue that the sultans were the ones who were first to embrace Islam and then the people followed. Uh, there was a lot, there were the missionary movements coming from the Middle East, from South Asia, that actually uh, brought Islam uh, to this region. But as I mentioned earlier, um, Islam brought, brought here a more of the Sufi type. Uh, and then Islam interacted with the uh, feudal society, very hierarchical, authoritarian. We have the Raja or the Malay ruler at the top. We have the warrior class, the second strata, and then the Ra'ya, the people at the bottom. So Islam that came, the Sufi type interacted with this Islam. And that was the reason why also um, the Malay rulers continues to have right, um, certain say or certain uh, symbolic uh, characters of uh, as custodians uh, of, of, of Islam uh, in their respective countries, particularly the Malay states. So they, all these are historical factors that we need to understand. So because people will say, how come uh, the Malay rulers are taking charge of Islam? What happened to the ulama? Uh, you know, these are, these, are, these are the main reasons why. Um, now, if you walk, if you drive uh, through the ECP, well, you will come across this mosque at the CBD area. It's the Habib No Shrine. Again, it's an example of uh, Habib No is a famous Sufi. Uh, some would argue that he has mystical powers here, and he lived in Singapore. Uh, and uh, this is reason, this is his shrine, uh, still there. Uh, and we should. I'm just just trying to say that it's an example of my earlier argument <coughs> that Sufism is is a dominant uh, 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 orientation of uh, Muslims that came uh, to this region. Now, the earlier phases of Islamization that, that came here are different from what I will discuss next, 1970s and 1980s, the revivalist period. Uh, Islam that came here, as I mentioned, as a Sufi type, uh, Islam intermingled with Malay society, Malay culture, Malay political system, but generally is an Islam that is quite tolerant towards Malay arts, Malay culture, Malay language, and hence Malay um, identity survive and in a way becomes uh, integrated into um, the, 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 the religion become integrated into Malay culture. Yeah. So Islam has an impact on Malay dance, Malay literature, Malay philosophy, Malay thought, uh, Malay language, for instance. And Malay language, as I mentioned, continue to evolve. Uh, Malay language in the past has a lot of Sanskrit words, right? Angota, Rupa, Kapala, Masa, Katika, Dewasa. These are all uh, Sanskrit words. Uh, uh, and if you look at the inscriptions, you know, we, we have a lot of interactions and that's how uh, Malay language evolved. And Malay, interestingly, became the lingua franca of Islamization uh, in this region uh, uh, also. And Islamization did not, did not use Arabic. Uh, per se, but also used Malay language. And that's how it spread very quickly in this region. Um, but as Islam came in, it interacted, some words are imported. Uh, God, uh, Allah is a, is, is a term uh, used, uh, Arabic term. Uh, prayers, uh, salat, you know, uh, heaven, you know, you use uh, shulga for, for Malays, it's become jannah. But in the past, we have no problems with this. 
Malay society uses the term interchangeably. In fact, right, when I was growing up, you know, uh, the, the books that we used to learn for prayers is not solat, it's not the Arabic term, but we use the word sembahyang, you know, sembahyang is a very Malay term. But uh, we have no problems. You want to use solat is fine, you want to use sembahyang is fine, right? Um, but of course, there are some worries today that, you know, that uh, the Malays are no longer using uh, the Malay terms like Selamat Hari Raya instead use the word Eid Mubarak. Uh, rather than saying Terima Kasih or Thank You, you say Shukran. Uh, or you, uh, instead of using Sama-sama uh, uh, or You're Welcome, you use the word Afwan. Uh, well, certain groups, uh, this is basically fashionable to use Arabic terms. Uh, I'm not overly concerned about these terms. Of course, I would I would be concerned if people say, if you use Selamat Hari Raya, you're no longer a good Muslim. And that one, I'll be concerned. But if you want to use Eid Mubarak, Shukran, Afwan, so be it. It's trendy. It's trendy. But uh, of course, we see greater use of such terms. But I don't think uh, this is an Arabization that we should be concerned about. And it continues to evolve. The Malay language continues to evolve. Um, Another impact on Malay language, of course, would be the importation of alphabets, not only uh, Arabic uh, alphabets, because certain words, right, um, Arabs do not have those alphabets, like uh, I think the word um, P, right, P for pineapple, they don't have the word P. So we have to, to use uh, um, uh, alphabets from other, 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 other groups. Uh, the word C, ch, sound is also uh, not found in Arabic language. So we, some of the alphabets we actually took from the Persian language. And, uh, and hence, we see the enriching of the Malay language by importing some of these terms. Um, there was a significant change in architecture. But in the past, the mosque looks like this, looks like rumah kampung, kampung houses. Uh, of course, lately we see more domes. Domes do not come from the Malay world, uh, but we don't have any problem with those things. Of course, the, the sad part is that we are losing uh, the uh, character, but we also do not want to essentialize this is Malay and this is, this is Arabs. I think we see the evolution uh, of, of Malay architecture. Um, Islam too had an impact on arts. Um, very uh, commonly is that rarely uh, we see designs of uh, the um, uh, featuring human face and more floral. I think Islam has a role to play in this. Uh, but uh, what is interesting is that the Malays right adds color to 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 arts as well, right? And then we see uh, some of the songket. You know, if you go to to the Middle East, you know, and you do your prayers, you know, the Malays, of course, some of them would like to dress, you know, floral designs like this. And you see that that kind of interaction and intermingling between the Malays and the Middle Easterners. And we see that 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 exchange be very interesting to watch. So generally, in the past, when Islam came, they were quite open to accepting culture, quite neutral to culture. Culture is also part of Islam as much as Islam change and shapes the theology, thinking about uh, God and monotheism and rationality. But uh, 1970s is a, is a significant change. And all this began with some developments in the Middle East, right? Uh, and it's not only happening in the Southeast Asian region, it happened in the Muslim world globally. And I must explain that the Muslims, that point of time in 1970s, 1980s, felt right that um, they were being colonized and they were being dominated by the Western powers. And many significant events happened. 
the fall of the Ottomans in 1920s led to the birth of the, um, the secularist Kemalist uh, military regime in Turkey. That's one incident. Uh, and then uh, subsequently defeats after defeats in the Arab-Israeli wars in, in Jerusalem also led to some form of um, the, the feeling of being dominated uh, by Muslims globally, as well as uh, that feeling, of course, trickled to Southeast Asia as well. Uh, and uh, other things in the Cold War, you know, the Gulf War in 1990, Soviet Union invasion of Afghanistan. These are all events that happened globally that shaped the Muslim world. Uh, but um, what happened is that then the Muslim groups, right, tried to counter these trends and try to say, we should not be dominated. We should go back to religion and we should fight this domination. And they looked to the Middle East, right? So some groups were interested in the Muslim Brotherhood, how they organize society and the, at the base, you know, the Islamization of society. We need to counter Westernization by promoting Islamic identity and then work our way up uh, to form uh, the... Uh, Islamic uh, society, Islamic governance, and then subsequently Islamic state. Uh, there are groups that are, of course, interested in Salafi Wahhabism, uh, mainly due to travels in the Middle East. They want to purify religion, but this one centers more on the rituals aspect, on the practices and cultural aspect. We need to purify ourselves, go back to the fundamentals of Islam, and hence we can counter the West. And interestingly, some groups here in the 1970s and 1980s were quite interested in the Shia Iranian revolution in 1979 Iran, even though uh, the, the Malays and the Muslims in this region are majority Sunnis, they are interested in this Vilayat Ifaqeh, the, the guardianship of the ulama. And this actually shaped uh, society, political events uh, in, 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 in Southeast Asia. But uh, let's, let's not forget that there are drivers in the Middle East and people go to the Middle East to understand some of these developments that were happening. But there were also changes that happened in the, these three countries and local drivers. Mainly economic development led to urbanization, greater movement of people from the rural to the urban areas. Uh, as people get more educated, they study in campuses and there's a campus movement grew and they were the ones reading materials from the Middle East, uh, attracted to the Muslim Brotherhood kind of ideas. Uh, there were political developments that forced them to rethink about the society. For instance, in Malaysia, there was this May 13 riots in 1969 and hence it came with a solution that, you know, we need to go back to the fundamentals of Islam. Uh, apart from restructuring of society ethnically, and there was a greater movement to promote Islamic alternative. And where did they go to? They went to the Middle East and they tried to import the revivalist groups as mentioned in the previous slide. So we have the Muslim Brotherhood, we have the Salafi Wahhabi, we have the, um, the Vilayat Ifake. Um, of course, as I mentioned earlier, generally there are Sufi groups that brought Islam of a, of a very moderate and progressive type in Southeast Asia. Uh, and hence there's another group, local groups that tries to promote neo-Sufism, taking their revivalist character, mixing it with the Sufism, and hence trying to promote Sufism as a way of life and tries to segregate itself from Westernization. And this is an example that happened in Malaysia. There often such a neo-Sufi group uh, with revivalist character called the Darul Arkham Movement, uh, which was, later banned by the Mahathir government in 1994. 
going very quickly in the next uh, five to 10 minutes or so, um, I want to cover some of the issues and challenges facing contemporary society today. Now, we are all interested in violent and non-violent orientation of this revivalist type. That initially came from the Middle East and then driven by locally. Just a recap of the revivalist influence, we have a Salafi Wahhabism, Muslim Brotherhood, Wilayat Ifrake, Neo-Sufism. These groups are rivals. If you, if you try to map it up in the, uh, uh, the Middle East influence, uh, they are competing with each other geopolitically, divided by territories. But uh, all these are also played out in, in Southeast Asia. Some uh, actually merge together. Right? The Salafi Wahhabi can merge with Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, the Neo Sufis could also merge with the, the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and uh, I would say Muslim Brotherhood can also took, take elements from the Vilaya Ifaqih, you know, the, the guardianship of the ulama idea of the Shiism. So it's very interesting to see some of these combinations being played out here in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, I would go through this slide very quickly. Uh, we, are, we all know uh, that uh, the violent orientation deals with terrorism. We have the Jama'a Islamiyah. We have, we have lately the ISIS threat. These are clearly the Middle Eastern influence, though I think some of the drivers were also local factors. We need to understand the local nationalist narrative that also drove people to, to become violent. All right, so Middle East influence plus uh, local uh, uh, national factors contributing to uh, terrorist issues. But I'm more interested to look at a non-violent type, you know, groups that adopt the Middle East ideas, uh, try to, to implement them locally, face some of the uh, local uh, challenges and local uh, structures, had to go through the democratic process in order to, to champion their ideology. Uh, one group is the Parti Islam Malaysia PAS um, that has uh, been the, um, uh, <clears throat> quite central in Malaysian politics, underwent significant changes in the 1980s, adopt some of this Vilaya Ifake or guardianship of the ulama principle, adopting uh, some ideas of the Salafi Wahhabism, adopting some of the ideas of the Muslim Brotherhood, campaigned for democratic process and captured some power in respective states in Malaysia and tries to implement the concept of an Islamic state. So this is a, you know, taking ideas from the Middle East and trying to localize it and put it in the local context. Uh, and then uh, PAS also tried to implement the Hudud laws in, in Kelantan. Uh, there was a revival of this debate lately. I don't want to go into the details. So that means the question is that this debate is not forgotten, it's still ongoing in contemporary society. Um, we also have Indonesia, similar party, um, more recent in terms of its history compared to uh, Malaysian past. Uh, but if you look at the vote shares, uh, it's gaining ground in Indonesian society. We also have the Hizbut Tahrir movement. Um, this one not necessarily participating in politics. It was banned in 2017, but it tries to form this global uh, caliphate. Um, uh, and as I mentioned, it was banned in 2017. So there is another group, one participating in the democratic process. Now this group uh, refuses to, to, to be part of the democratic process. But uh, those are the Middle Eastern impact in terms of the political uh, ideology. Uh, I want to look at Islamization of society in Southeast Asia as a whole and some of the local drivers of the Islamic revivalism. Uh, mainly uh, groups that tries to Islamize 
all aspects of social life, you know, Islamic education, Islamic state, Islamic uh, institutions, Islamization of knowledge, Islamization of foreign policy. Um, now, if you look at the change before and after 1960s and 1970s in the past, uh, this is a depiction of Malay society. If you look at P. Ramli movies uh, or movies uh, in the 1950s and 60s, you see how uh, society's dressing change and attitudes change. Um, and there was a significant impact also after the 1970s and 1980s on campus. Uh, you might want to read this book, which I edited, um, published two years ago. There was a chapter by Yon Mahamudi that looks at the different Middle Eastern influence on Indonesian campuses. We see a variety of them. The Shia movement, Muslim Brotherhood, Hizbut Tahrir, Salafi movement, the Hizmet movement. All these are shaping Indonesian Islam today at the campus level. We see a change of um, attitudes towards consumption. Uh, again, I want to emphasize here, is this Middle East influence or is this local drivers that, 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 that drove it? Uh, I must say that this halalization of society is, is actually a Southeast Asian uh, uh, phenomena uh, and not, uh, uh, not generally a Middle Eastern phenomena. When we go to the Middle East, we do not really see halal certification, but we tend to see this trend in Singapore, Malaysia and in Indonesia. Um, certain politicians uh, like to quote uh, Islamic thinkers, Islamic uh, uh, preachers from overseas. Uh, lately, uh, Yusuf Kardawi is one uh, of such a figure that's often quoted, often used by politicians to justify uh, their political behavior. Um, and uh, generally how this this impact on society, we see that the rise of conservative movements has an impact on religious minorities, including tensions playing out globally between Sunnis and Shias are also played out locally uh, in Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, particularly on the Shia issue, right? And we see that happening in Indonesia and also in Malaysia. Um, another point I want to make is that uh, this has got to do with market Islam. Uh, there's a strong drive of trying to Islamize society from within, trying to create an Islamic alternative. And hence, we see a lot of Sharia economy, Sharia banking. And lately, uh, we tend to see this trend of Sharia tourism uh, also happening. Is, it, is this Arabization or is it locally uh, driven? Right? I must argue that it could have taken from the Muslim Brotherhood idea of trying to Islamize society from within, but these drivers are mainly uh, locally driven. Right, we often talk about uh, conservative voices, but we fail to see the progressive groups in uh, Southeast Asia, as well as in the Middle East. Um, there are groups in Indonesia, the champions for moderate Islam, uh, Said Agil Siraj, Shafi Ma'rif of the Muhammadiyah, and Quraysh Shihab. Now, I, if you see the next three slides, you, you will see me featuring a lot of um, the uh, Arab preachers in Southeast Asia. They've stayed in Southeast Asia. They are locally immersed, but they are Arabs uh, in terms of their, their, their heritage. Yeah? Quraysh Shihab is one example, a uh, very progressive person who studied in the Middle East. So the Middle East is not necessarily uh, the exporter of conservative Islam. It depends. It depends. I think that the challenge for policymakers and all of us is basically who do we send our students or our children to in the Middle East? 
there are people championing this. And for Malaysia, uh, maybe this is a bit of a challenge. I was trying to look for progressive voices, uh, very difficult. But I'm glad that lately they have been republishing the works of Said Hussein Alatas, you know, uh, who was formerly a, 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 an NUS a professor. Uh, he's a Malaysian. Uh, he writes in Malay about Islamic uh, affairs, very progressive. Uh, tries to contextualize Islam, looking at values, looking at Western contribution to society and progress. Uh, also, uh, an Arab uh, by descent, but sees himself as a Malay, uh, contributing to the discourse. So, there are progressives. There are progressives in this region, but their voices are marginalized. Uh, for Singapore's case, yes, we do have the Majlis Ugama Islam Singapura promoting contextual Islam, trying to promote progressive values. Uh, there are progressive voices. Habib Hassan Al-Tas, the Imam of Ba'alami Mosque. Another example of uh, Hadrami uh, groups, I mean, forefathers who came to this region, uh, very, very well known for his interfaith work, uh, interfaith dialogue. Um, but I mean, the bigger question is whether these voices that we're talking about here are dominant or not. And uh, it's not necessarily that the Middle East is negative. Um, again, from the same book, uh, I'm not trying to sell this book or trying to promote this book, but uh, this book was published mainly to address Arabization, the Middle East influence. So you see the chapters in the book, most of them are trying to address, are trying to counter, not counter, I mean trying to engage with this debate of uh, the Middle East influence in Southeast Asia. That's why I think most of the chapters in this book tries to see that. Uh, Azhar Ibrahim from the Malay Studies Department in NUS is trying to say that uh, actually we are selective. The Muslims here are selective in choosing who they want to study or what they want to import from the Middle East. Uh, there is a strong intellectual culture in the Middle East, also facing some marginalization, but there are potential. There's potential if we translate their works here, if we bring them here, they could they could be progressives and in line with uh, our country's secular values and multiracialism. Um, so the translation culture is very weak in the Malay world. Uh, Indonesia is picking up very slowly, but generally we are not reading the correct stuffs. All right, I think I've went over time, uh, so I just want to conclude. We need to rethink Arabization as a cause of conservatism. We need to look at socio-historical processes. Arab Islam came from the Middle East to Southeast Asia. I mean, we were all right one point of time until the 1970s when we took a different turn. Uh, Middle East influence is neutral, but we should be concerned about the revivalist type. There are progressive types, there are the liberal type, but we tend to um, learn and bring in uh, values that, that, that are not in sync with our society here. Uh, we tend to focus, a lot of our work tends to focus on terrorism. We need to look beyond terrorism issues and look at nonviolent versions of political Islam. Uh, several indicators of political Islam would be promotion of Islamic state, Islamic law, and conservative society. Yes, we need to look at Arabization or the Middle East influence, but we also need to look at the local drivers that actually bring in here this region and also promote their own conservative brands here. And uh, lastly, progressive have more space in Indonesia compared to Malaysia and in Singapore. All right, I will stop uh, there. Um, and uh, I know I went slightly over time. I was hoping to have uh, more time for questions and answers. Uh, so yeah, back to Tatiana. Thank you, Dr. Nosharyal. Um, 
I think you made an interesting point when you highlighted the importance of agency by local actors and local drivers. I think it's important to like to, to note that it's not just a passive process whereby like the local actors in Southeast Asia accept, you know, wholesale these ideas and practices. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um we will I think your presentation has set us up quite nicely for interesting Q and A. So um to our audience, if you'd like to ask a question, uh, now's the time to let us know. Uh, raise the, click the raise hand button on your Zoom toolbar. Um, you can also send your questions to us using the chat function. Um, I have a question here from a student from Yale and US, uh, Lim Lee Carl. Uh, his question is not strictly about the Middle East, but perhaps you could just uh, talk about it. Um, Dr. Nosharil talked about the history of Islam in the Southeast Asia region, and I'm curious to know whether there was a dominant religion in uh, Southeast Asia before Islam, and how did Islam become the dominant re religion after it arrived? You know, maybe deal with that. Sure. I mean, the, yep, there are many dominant religions in the past. You need to look back at the, um, the history of the region. I mean, uh, works by John Mixick would be interesting. Um, there were civilizations previously. There were the Majapahits. There were the Sri Vijayas. I mean, uh, some uh, um, were Buddhists. Some were Hindus. Uh, they were dominant religions. And if you look at the artifacts in this region, I mean, there are remnants of that. Um, the Royal Buddha is an example uh, in Yogyakarta. It's uh, basically an example of um, Buddhist Buddhism being the uh, official religion. But I think I uh, also want to to add another point here. Even though that you know Islam came later, um, uh, two things that we need to note: Islam that came did not destroy these artifacts. That's why you can still see the Buddha and the remnants of other religions here. I mean, they are not the you know. <laughs> One would recall what happened in Afghanistan, you know, at one time where the fundamentalist groups uh, destroyed some of the infrastructure that is not seen as Islamic. But the Muslims here generally retain and respectful of that. Uh, that's that's uh, uh, a key feature. But um, of course, Islamization came later. Um, it spread uh, different levels. Um, some would argue it spread very swiftly. Uh, there was also differences between uh, Islam that came that came to the coastal areas and Islam that came to the interior. And we see the Islam that that uh, Muslims at the coastal areas are more cosmopolitan uh, compared to the ones in the interior, where there was a greater uh, mixing of uh, local cultures and uh, uh, Islam. So these are all important developments that happened. Now, Islam that came is not monolithic. Uh, it interacted with different faiths, it interacted with different civilizations. And uh, generally, Islam as a philosophy, I'm, I'm speaking theologically here, they're quite neutral to local cultures and they are willing to accept local cultures. I mean, certain tenets um, uh, are quite straightforward, like monotheism. But when it comes to culture, that's why Malay culture survived for the longest time until recently. Thanks, Dr. Nusharil. Um, sorry, you mentioned in your uh, conclusion actually that progressives have more space in the discursive space uh, in Indonesia compared to Malaysia and Singapore. Uh, you seem to have alluded to opposition to progressive voices in Singapore. Can I ask you to expand on this? Uh, I mean, where, where is the opposition coming from and, and, and why? 
Um, I wouldn't use the word opposition because opposition sounds very political. There is a, there is a clear, open, discursive uh, challenge that happened publicly. I mean, we see that in Malaysia. I mean, there is this open challenge. <laughs> I mean, because the, the issues are more severe, the book banning or a fatwa against a group that says that this is a deviant group. We do not see that here. But I would say that the, the, the case in Singapore is a question of a dominant orientation versus the marginal group. Uh, that, you know, uh, again, we have to look at the structure in, in, in Singapore society. Uh, we have, we have uh, religious bureaucracies. Um, and uh, of course, religious bureaucracy is very powerful in Singapore because it oversees Islamic affairs. And, uh, and increasingly lately, of course, uh, certain groups, um, unless you are given uh, certain permits to talk about religion, uh, you are not allowed to speak uh, about religious affairs in the mosques. So contestation-wise, we do not see an open uh, contestations. But I think uh, Singapore's case, you need to understand the silences as well. I mean, we have not heard openly what, are, what is the stand of the, the, the religious elites on, for instance, religious minority groups, uh, uh, for instance, the, the, the you know. Uh, so again, we do not see this happening at uh, the forefront in the public level. But when it comes to the discursive space, I think most of this um, engagements happened in such forums in academia, uh, but we do not see that open space happening uh, publicly. Now, this is different eh, compared to 1970s and 1980s. Very different in Singapore. I mean, to, uh, Said Hussein Atas is a good example. You know, uh, there was a, there was a, the fatwa on uh, you know, the organ transplant Hota uh, by Moes, and this is all recorded in newspapers. Um, so uh, he disagreed with the fatwa, um, and he said that. Uh, Muslims should be allowed to donate their organs, coronary transplant. So he published it in Britta Hairan. There was a lot of engagement and, and discursive uh, debates. And recently, um, the book, uh, Biar Kan Buta, a very famous book, uh, got republished again. I'm so happy to read this, this book getting republished. But there was a discursive public open engagement in the 1980s and 1970s. Uh, right now, we do not see that, that engagement happen publicly. Thanks, Dr. Nasharil. Um, I have a question from my colleague, uh, Sadiq Basha. Uh, Sadiq, you can unmute yourself and go ahead and ask your question. Uh, hello, Dr. Nasharil. Um, nice to see you again. Um, I wanted to ask about the, the way the Singapore government uh, with Moise is trying to attempt to, uh, how do you say? Okay, let me rephrase my question. With the, they, they, they are proposing to establish an Islamic college in Singapore as a solution um, to combat radicalism and such ideas. Uh, do you think that such, uh, uh, such a uh, policy, uh, sorry, not policy, such a step uh, will, be will be effective in the long run, basically? And if not, what, what, how do you think the government with Muiz should attempt to uh, combat this uh, ex uh, exclusivist um, uh, perspectives and ideas. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Sadiq. Uh, again, 
your guess is as good as mine, you know, because uh, we are also, I mean, personally, I'm not sure, you know, what are the plans for the Islamic college and why uh, they are planning for the Islamic college. So I think it's basically guesswork here. And uh, when you said that it's meant to uh, tackle uh, issues dealing with radicalism, uh, I'm also not sure if that is the main reason. And if that is really the main reason, then we need to understand what is wrong with uh, the current status quo. So there are many question marks, and I don't want to jump, jump the gun here and uh, to, to speak on behalf of any party. But I think it comes back to this whole idea, you know, why do we need to set up an Islamic college here? Uh, the current status is that uh, the madrasa children, uh, students, the graduates, they go to the Middle East, right, to pursue their degrees and all that. Um, but we, we rarely hear any open engagements or discussions about them when they come back. So we don't really know what exactly is the problem. And suddenly there's this announcement that they wanted to, to establish the Islamic college. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't want to share, uh, this is not the right platform to share some of my recent findings uh, of, 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 of my work that I'm doing uh, on the Islamic studies uh, graduates. But generally, if you look at the, um, our madrasa students going to uh, the Middle East, for instance, Al-Azhar University and all that, uh, I think the objectives have been very clear. They wanted, they should be there to, to study uh, religious sciences. Now, if that is the objective, I think it's still okay because there are scholars in the, the Middle East that can, they can, they can um, impart knowledge uh, to them on the religious aspects. But again, the bigger question is who do they study with and who do they study under in, in, in the Middle East? Uh, that's another question uh, for us to, to... So I don't think Middle East universities is the problem. I personally feel Middle East, problem, uh, Middle East universities is the problem. I think the status quo is good enough. I think the bigger question that we need to ask ourselves is who do we send our students to study to? I'll give you an example. The Indonesians, uh, they study in the Middle East too. But uh, people like Kurai Shihab, as I mentioned earlier, very good, moderate, progressive um, uh, thinker. You should ask him what he thinks about the, the, the veil, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know uh, the fatwa that he gives. He studied under Al-Azhar University. His views about religious minorities and Shias. We have not heard that kind of quality you know, being talked about here in, this, in Singapore or in Malaysia, that kind of discussions about religious minority. And we have somebody like Indonesian, like Kurai Shihab, talking very progressively. He's a student of uh, Al-Azhar. That means Al-Azhar is not a problem. The uh, head of the chairman of Nahdlatul Ulama, um, Said Adil Siraj. Some people, you know, would say that oh, he's too tolerant towards Shiism, right? But where did he study? Saudi Arabia. <laughs> well, we one would associate Saudi Arabia with Wahhabism and Salafism, but you know, this guy coming back, promoter of Islam Nusantara. So I think the core is very strong in Indonesia before they leave to the Middle East, the core is very strong. The basis and foundation is very strong. So when they go to the Middle East, they just take in new knowledge, you know. This is a, it's a place where you can study religious texts. Uh, resources are, are fantastic, but it's who you study under. So I don't think we should be thinking too much about, you know, 
I mean, that's why I think if you want to really form an Islamic college, we have to be very sure uh, what exactly is the current situation? What exactly is the current problem? And what do we want to achieve? I'm not saying no to the Islamic college, but we need to tweak it in such a way that, you know, the agenda, the objective is right. If it's mainly about tackling radicalism, I think, uh, do we need a college to tackle radicalism? I think a uh, majority of us here in Singapore and this world are, are generally not radical type. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Professor. Uh, thanks, Dr. Nasharil. Um, I have a question from uh, Ilyas, also from the Middle East Institute. Ilyas, can you uh, go ahead? Yeah, Prof, uh, thanks so much for your talk. Very informative. I just wanted to ask a question. Uh, so that recently there's been a rise in global conservatism, right? And there's been a starker divide between uh, general liberal and conservative values in both politics and popular culture. And this is across you know, all religions and it's quite global. And you know, this region has not been exempt. So yeah, this is a general phenomenon that has you know, little directly to do with theology, but it might affect popular conceptualization and practice of Islam in the region uh, nonetheless. So I wanted to ask, how do you see this influencing Muslims here? You know, especially as you've said, they've been under the uh, ongoing influence of the 1970s revival. So any thoughts on that? You know, for example, what is the relationship between or interaction between that and revivalist values? Yeah. Okay, so I forgot to unmute. Very good question. Um, uh, this is my favorite topic, revivalism. Um, I think... Uh, because the direction, um, the direction of the discourse uh, has often uh, been focusing too much on the terrorism and radicalism, which is of course an important topic. I'm not saying that it's not important. We need to address that. Uh, that's why sometimes we fail to see. We tend to focus on violent extremism, right? Violent extremism, which is the ISIS, uh, the Jama'a Islamiyah, the Al-Qaeda. We need to tackle that, no doubt. And we have good security forces to deal with that. But we tend to fail to see the non-violent extremism. Uh, this is where policymakers have got to make the call here. Should we pay attention to it? Should we leave it as it is? You know, because um, I would say that this is a spectrum, you know. You know, if you look at Indonesian society, you know, for instance, the movement against Ahok 2017, widely cited case of Muslim conservative gaining power in Indonesia. Or the movement against religious minorities such as Shiism, uh, for instance. Uh, how, why do they act, why do the Muslims act in a certain way? There must be some drivers, right? And here we got to look at the role of the religious elites. Right? The religious elites were the ones uh, driving uh, these uh, conservative groups, uh, encouraging them, and, and they actually cited their fatwas or their religious opinions and justifying their trends. So we see, we need to explain, right? We need to look at it as a spectrum, the nonviolent extremism. And revivalist ideas can contribute to that nonviolent extremism. That's an initial baby step that if we are not careful and we do not tackle it head on, it could lead to, I don't know, greater extremism and, and, and hopefully not, but it could actually lead to violent extremism. 
right? This is a whole spectrum of processes. I'll give you an example. What is the main tenet of the revivalism? There's this segregation, right? Between what is Islam and what is not Islam. Now, you, you go back to the history uh, of Islamization from the very beginning when Islam came to this region. They were quite open to Malay culture. They accepted Malay dance, accepted uh, the Malay diet, uh, Malay games, the political structure as part of, you know, that local. So they're quite, Islam, Muslim preachers then were quite respectful of that. But the moment you draw the line and become more essential, you say, this is Islam and this is not Islam, uh, then I think it has an implication on how societies behave on the ground. It could have implications on how pe people are going to work as well. People will always ask themselves, am I in an Islamic environment or not? We always hear that kind of questions these days. You know, Am I working in an Islamic way of life or not? Uh, is my job Islamic endorsed or not? You know, is my diet, they don't say that, diet is, is clearly, you know, we always say this is a Muslim versus non-Muslim uh, kind of diet or kind of food. So it creates doubt in people's life. And it has an impact, you know, in terms of your selection of education, for instance. Uh, there is a long queue of students going, of parents sending their students to the madrasas. In the past, madrasas are very clear cut. We have madrasas simply because we want to enroll students. We want to create a religious elite. We need religious elites, you know. We need ustas. We need the ustazas. We need the ulama. But today, some parents, if you ask them why they wanted to send their children to the madrasas, oh, we want an Islamic environment. <laughs> so, so that is the, the first step. Now, if we do not tackle it head on, of course, we don't feel it here in Singapore because we are a minority and the state has been very clear that we are secular. But if you go to, to neighboring countries and you know, we see groups pushing the boundaries, pushing the boundaries and pushing the boundaries. And that's why we saw Islamization trends growing in Malaysia the fastest. The revivalist movement was the fastest in Malaysia because in the 1970s and 1980s, they were co-opted to the state structure Indonesia was later. Indonesia was a bit later. Suharto regime did not co-opt them immediately. It was only later. But in Malaysia, these Islamizers were co-opted and they actually run the government uh, machinery. And hence, you see a lot of uh, Islamic-run uh, uh, programs being, um, being developed in, in, in Malaysia compared to the other two countries. So, Again, uh, just to answer your question, we see this revivalist trend now happening, uh, 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 growing at a societal level, but at a state level, uh, Malaysia is ahead of the other two. <clears throat> okay, okay, thanks. Thanks so much, Dr. Inosharil. Um, okay, thank you. Um, I, my colleague Fadil has a question. Fadil, you can go ahead. Go ahead. Hello, Dr. Nusharil. Nice seeing you again. Thanks for the illuminating talk. I think all the familiar faces are coming out again. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, my question is about one of terms as well, as we move beyond this sort of uh, Arabization framework towards uh, people still latch on to the term conservatism, right? So conservatism tends to be juxtaposed with its opposite, which is in a sense progressivism. And numerous numerous commentators imply that you know conservatism can be is a problem, while progressivism is favorable. So 
in terms of dressing, for example, the hijab, tudung, or headscarf, depending on what you want to use, uh, is the is deemed conservative. So, is it then you know, especially because we see more and more women wearing a Muslim woman wearing the headscarf, is this phenomenon also a problem? And this extends beyond the hijab issue. For example, in the recent IPS uh, survey on religion and conservatism in Singapore, probably around 30 to 40% of the markers for progressivism is attitudes towards LGBT and sexuality. So, and most Muslims have certain conservative notions in that sense about you know, what is right and what is wrong. So if we look at vast numbers of Muslims having certain ideas about LGBT and sexuality, is that conservatism deem a problem? So in essence, I'm asking how helpful is it to use the conservatism versus progressivism framework to study local Muslim trends, especially if we're talking about the issue of social cohesion, isn't it better to just focus on particular markers such as uh, attitudes towards uh, non-Muslims or attitudes towards different ethnicities rather than using a catch-all phrase like conservatism or is perhaps even extremism a more helpful framework but then that also has a problem of extremism being equi uh, equivalent, uh, equal to uh, conservatism. So yeah, do you have any thoughts on these things? Oh, thanks. Uh... I was uh, advised by Teti that this is uh, 101. <laughs> so that's why some of the terms I use are pretty loose. But, uh, but if you notice in my presentation, I, I'm very careful with the use of that term. Uh, when, I mean, I'm not a fan of terminologies as well. Uh, I'm a fan of understanding ideas and its impact. And if you look at my writings, I, I tend to go back to, to each old sociologists who have actually discussed terminologies, but more importantly, and people say that I'm not fashionable, I'm out of fashion, but I think those, those works by Max Weber, Karl Mannheim, Robert Towler, those are very fantastic works that tries to, tries to understand concepts and, and importantly, the impact on society now and this is where we depart from uh, academia you know academia likes to have these terms and you know big concepts you know but i think i'm not interested in those i use terms and i try to study their impact so when, when i use the term conservatism and progressivism i'm very clear that's why my examples are very clear i look at the impact um at the end of the day uh, societies have evolved and we begin to accept new norms uh, you talk about the hijab issue. You go if you're born in the 1970s. If you if you have people putting on the hijab, people will look at you differently, frankly, because you are a minority. You go to campus. I was told uh, if you put on the hijab, you are really a minority. And today, maybe the opposite is happening, right? But people have come to accept that. I don't want to put labels conservative, and no, that's not a problem. That's your personal life. It does not hurt any people's lives so be it. It's, it's basically what you choose to wear. Now, when it comes to issues that you mentioned about um, um, rights of minorities, uh, this one should be, should be something that we need to look at deeper. Uh, now, if we have certain attitudes that can have significant impact on people's lives and people's rights, uh, I think this is something that we need to tackle head on. And uh, if it contributes to violence or marginalization or discrimination, uh, we don't really see that happening in Singapore, but it, maybe in the neighboring countries, if you, 
it could cause violence or riots and if a certain fatwa against minority groups could lead to that. And that's a conservatism uh, that we should uh, be, be worried about. So don't, don't, don't think so much about conservative progressivism. I think I'm very clear about the implications of certain ideas. We need to measure that in, in, in when, when we discuss uh, problems in society. But for progressive thought, uh, Progressive thought, I think the, the tenets are quite clear in terms of uh, how it differentiates itself with the so-called conservative and the traditionalist type. I mean, we all understand that uh, Muslims have to move with times. I mean, I can say this because I'm a Muslim and I believe that the Muslim faith can contribute to the progress. I'm very clear in my conscience, but I think the, the issue now is what kind of Muslim? What kind of orientation are we promoting? Do we want to be held back the revivalist type, anti-Western. Uh, I was told uh, by some speakers, you know, a lot of speakers came, came down and we share some, some, some information, say that, you know, what you're learning in school is a secular knowledge and you are not being a good Muslim. Now, should we allow that here in Singapore? So I, I asked this question. So when I study geography, I mean, I, I was a favorite, my favorite subject was geography. Do I become less of a Muslim if I study in a secular school than if I study in a religious school? I ask the question, what is uh, Islamic geography? <laughs> what has Islamic geography contributed to climate change, you know, issues of sustainability? We need to go to the Western discourse. Now, that's, that, is, that is the impact of conservatism that we want to, to, to address here, right? Because if we keep on harping this idea of a dichotomy between Islam versus West, Islam versus secular, I don't think the community is going to make much progress. So that's why I use the term uh, progressive, where we actually embrace knowledge, whether it comes from the Muslim world or from the Western world or from other parts of the world, I think at the end of the day, we want the community to progress. Thanks, Prof. Um, okay, there's this group of questions um, dealing with this about the same topic. Uh, so we've been talking about the flow of ideas and influences from the Middle East to Southeast Asian uh, countries. Uh, what about the other way? I mean, has there been any Southeast Asian Islamist movements that have tried to promote their uh, their version of yeah, Islam back to the Middle East. And I would also add uh, my own question, which is to what extent are Southeast Asian you know, countries regarded in the Middle East as like a, as a model? Um, well, historically, I think over the years, there has been always this idea that uh, the flow has always been from the Middle East to Southeast Asia. It's, a, it's an unfortunate thing, even though the Muslims in Southeast Asia in the past have always uh, made significant contributions, um, but rarely it went the other way around. Of course, there are works that discusses impact of certain discourses in this part of the world. Although there was, there was this one incident where there was a discussion about uh, uh, some issues in this part of the world that were taken back to the Middle East for Know, for a discussion, but that's that's limited to to that kind of discourses. But to have a thinker going to the Middle East to to lecture the Middle Easterners, I think that's 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 something that we have not really uh, witnessed on a large scale. Um, there was a lot of talk of learning from uh, countries such as Malaysia and Indonesia, particularly the democratization process. Uh, 
but I think <coughs> that's also quite uh, minimal at this point of time. Um, as you know that uh, Malaysia tries to portray itself as a modern uh, Islamic country, but if you, if you see, this was one of the last projects before Dr. Mahathir stepped down or was uh, or before he resigned uh, uh, earlier this year that he tries to, to bring in the major Islamic countries together for a conference. Of course, many Middle Eastern countries did not attend. Saudi Arabia did not attend. And even Indonesia and, and Pakistan did not attend. So I think generally has been uh, quite uh, one-sided flow, especially on, on, on religious matters. Though in the past, uh, from what I know, uh, there were scholars from this region that actually taught in the Middle East basically the, the Grand Mosque in Mecca, but that's mainly teaching. Um, but shaping ideas, no. Uh, there were more recent cases where I saw on YouTube that you know we have Indonesian uh, uh, ulama talking and addressing a forum in Al-Azhar. Quraysh Shihab is one of them uh, because I think he's, he, of his ability to articulate good Arabic he was actually lecturing and in the audience was the Mufti of, of Egypt. Uh, so that's an example of perhaps respect given to a Southeast Asian ulama. In the 1970s or 80s, uh, there was this recognition by the Al-Azhar University towards uh, an Indonesian ulama, Hamka, was given the professor, honorary professor title. So that's again an acknowledgement of a thinker from Southeast Asia. But apart from that, um, in terms of shaping discourses, uh, I think it's, it's generally uh, not the case. Thanks, Dr. Nusharil. I have a question from Sean uh, from NUS. Um, he says that Indonesia and Malaysia are secular states where Islam plays a major role in both politics and social life. Um, he wants to know about Brunei. Uh, how did Brunei end up implementing Sharia in their constitution while Indonesia and Malaysia remained secular? Uh, is there any Middle East, sorry, is there any Middle East influence there or, or is it a top-down thing? Good question. Uh, I, I'm also puzzled by the, by the move uh, to implement Sharia. I mean, uh, it, it, it took everybody by surprise. Um, yeah, again, there was no context. Uh, there, there must be some calculations into why Sharia is implemented. But that's one, one issue. The other issue is how Sharia is implemented. Again, we do not know. We do not know to what extent, right? Sharia is being implemented or being policed at the societal level. Of course, there was, I mean, Mahathir in 2001 said that Malaysia is an Islamic state, but these are all statements, grand statements for domestic audience and also for, for the international audience. But how is it implemented? At the day-to-day -day level, again, we don't know. So same same situation with uh, Brunei. Now, Brunei is, is, a, is an interesting case because um, Brunei has always maintained the, the Islam Melayu Baraja. It, its Islam has got Malay characteristics and also the Malay rulers, similar to Malaysia, but definitely uh, a more closed, um, a more small uh, controlled environment in Brunei. But uh, from, from what I know, Brunei, uh, adopts a very strict uh, Shafi'i school of thought. Uh, so in, in Islam, there are four jurists, in Sunni Islam, there are four uh, juristic schools of thought, the Shafi'i, Maliki, Hanbali, and Hanafi. So Brunei 
is one of those very strict in terms of uh, enforcing the Shafi'i school of thought. Uh, and it's, it still retains some of the Sufi characteristics and Sufi rituals as part of its religious identity. <laughs> so I don't think that we can directly link it to the Middle East, but historically, definitely, he has got the, 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 the influence. Because Islam came from the Middle East, so we cannot escape from that. But but uh, the, the Shari'aization, uh, uh, the implementation of Sharia laws, I think it came out of the blue and, 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 and we don't really know the context uh, for that. Whether actually there were societal demands for that, uh, again, we don't know about that. It also helps that Brunei is an absolute monarchy in matter of speaking. Yeah, Brunei is, is, is an absolute monarchy and um, but we must also say that it's, it's a small state. It's a small state. So uh, generally, in terms of uh, diverse views, I mean, of course, like all societies, there are diverse views. But I think generally, the discourse has been quite controlled. There is no significant oppositional forces uh, that challenges uh, the, the current state of affairs. So I think there is minimal, uh, minimal discursive element in, in Brunei society. Again, I'm speaking. I haven't been to Brunei, but again, I'm speaking based on what I read and from what I know. Thank you, Dr. Masharil. Um, my colleague um, Asif Shuja, a senior research fellow at uh, the Institute, has a question. Asif, you can go ahead. Uh, thank you, Tatiana. Uh, uh, professor, uh, thank you so much. Uh, whenever I listen to you, uh, I have a very good feeling, very soothing, uh, you know, calm feeling the discourses on Islam that you give. And uh, uh, there were uh, just two points I wanted to highlight. And uh, it was as much about uh, clearing my own doubt if there is any, uh, and also to help you further in your research if it could go in that direction. Uh, I have heard you talking about uh, non-violent discourses of Islam. Uh, I see, uh, as far as we know about Buddhism or Gandhism, you know, they have been propagating that this violence breeds in mind. Uh, so actually what we see uh, as terrorism or, or killing of people, that is the culmination of that idea which germinated in your mind, which was non-violent initially. So if I say I don't like you, that is violent because it will culminate into that point. That was uh, one thing. Uh, the other is about, uh, about uh, two aspects of Islam. The first is linked to your culture and the other is linked to your afterlife. First is about this life, the other is about afterlife. So, uh, so far as uh, the culture is uh, involved, I see that there's not much problem there. But when it is linked to afterlife, that means if you live a particular kind of life which is considered as properly Islamic, then you have passed the exam, so you will go to heaven. That concept. You know, specifically the example that you gave about about uh, sending my son to mother son. I have a daughter, but I'm just giving you an example. So if I think that I will send my son to mother sir, and he would be doing his, that is recitation, memorization of Quran, I'm confident if I am a firm believer of Muslim Islam, that my seven generations will go to heaven. You know, this is the concept. So, but I will never tell you that I want to go to heaven that is why I'm sending my son to mother, sir. So I will say, I'm going to reform the society. These are all for positive good. So I was just asking you if you could uh, do this differentiation and do the research. Uh, that's for it. I mean, thank you so much. Bye-bye. 
Thanks, uh, Professor Asif. I think your voice was breaking up. If I catch your questions correctly, and Teti, please help me if, if, I, if I get the questions uh, right. Uh, I think the first one, I think I agree with you fully. I mean, uh, that's why I think I mentioned that, you know, we, we, should, we should not uh, distinguish violent and non-violent extremism because equally, uh, they, are, they have certain implications in society. And if you're not careful, the non-violent extremism, you know, saying that I don't like you, I don't like the West, I don't like this, you know, we tend to dichotomize, dichotomize things as Islamic versus non-Islamic. And I think if you're not careful, if we do not control that in society, we create a very exclusive group exclusive community and once you create an exclusive community uh, that, that of course there are dangers uh, certain certain things may happen to them you know they may not be uh, forthcoming they may not be participating in the national economic life or they may they may they may become an underclass and this is another worry that we could lead them to other things to do other things like violent extremism but i i would say i would rather see violent and non-violent extremism as 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 a spectrum and i think if you're not careful, the non-violent extremism may lead to, to violent extremism. There are, of course, sociological uh, processes that uh, that may lead to to the movement from one phase to another. So I, I agree with you on those aspects. Uh, and hence, we need to tackle that. And policymakers and, and students should, should not only focus on violent extremism, uh, which I think I want to add this point, uh, this juncture here. Uh, sometimes we, we we are quick and coming back to an earlier question by 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 a colleague yeah, yeah I'm not sure if, it, if it's Elias uh, or who said it um, that um, <clears throat> that we tend to um, focus too much on violent extremism uh, that that we we forget about the the, the non uh, uh, violent uh, aspects even though um, uh, if we if we see it carefully, it could uh, contribute right to to violent extremism and hence the policymakers right. Uh, we tend to focus on violent extremism. We we tend to forget and neglect the non-violent aspects. And when groups say that they are moderate Muslims, right? Who are the moderate Muslims? Again, coming back to the terminology of progressive versus conservative, uh, they declare themselves. I'm a moderate because I have spoken against terrorism. Now, I've repeatedly said many times, and you can check my writings, I said, be careful with such statements. Because everybody, majority, right, majority of the Muslim population will reject terrorism. It's certainly against Islamic teachings, you know, to take a human life. But does rejecting terrorism, uttering that you reject terrorism, make you a progressive Muslim? And that's a bigger question mark. And this is where you need to judge the person based on this non-violent extremism indicators. How do we judge them? Coming back to the earlier point I made, look at the implications of uh, certain fatwas or certain ideas. So we get to be very careful. You know? we, we should not be simply labeling people as moderate simply because they, they reject terrorism. I think, I think, I think, I think we have to be, to be very careful with that. Uh, coming back to your Second question, Asif. I think this has got to do with orientation. I mean, um, <clears throat> that is a dualistic way of understanding Islam. The world, and this, this sounds like a religious class already, huh, Tatiana. <laughs> it is not meant to be a religious class, but there, there is such an orientation. Uh, there's such an orientation that uh, 
that uh, I do good in this world, I will get rewarded in the hereafter. Uh, and interestingly, I want to share with you a very classic case. Uh, in the Malay text, uh, Malay text uh, the Malay rulers in the past behaved like this. They can be the most cruel people on earth, you know, but at their deathbed, they become good Muslims. Why? Because they say, uh, because in the hereafter, I want to lead a good life. So he always advised his children to be good Muslims because they believe that, you know, he's being judged in the hereafter and not the world. So he can be the most cruel person on earth, but, you know, he tries to do good towards the end of his life and then become good Muslim. That's dualistic uh, understanding of Islam. But if you understand Islam in terms of the philosophy behind it, uh, there is this term that, you know, every Muslim is the caliph of God on earth. Ah, certain people will twist that they want to establish a caliphate. You see how people twist the, the term? But that's not true. What is meant by the Islamic philosophy behind it is that when you are on earth, you are the caliph of God, you represent the good, noble values of God. You must be justice. You must be humane. You must be, you must uh, respect differences. You must promote equality. Uh, so these are basically the caliphs of God on earth. Now, how many Muslims do that in the Muslim world? And that's a big question mark. So if we think in terms of the Islamic philosophy, I don't think, I don't think we, should, we should be segregating Muslim life between world and hereafter because what happened, you must do good in this world as well. Whatever happens in the hereafter, that depends on. Uh, the divine. That's the basic uh, Muslim uh, philosophy. Asif, does that answer your question? Just say thank you. I mean, always, always thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Asif. Thank you. Okay, um, there's another group of questions as well. And it's actually on, uh, I mean, switching gears back to the Middle East. Uh, it's actually on the Abraham Accords. Uh, so recent developments like the Abraham Accords you know, indicate uh, that some Arab Gulf countries uh, seem to be opting for pragmatism over uh, religion, uh, religious ideology. So uh, even for Saudi Arabia, although it hasn't acceded, you know, political watchers have said it's not a matter of if, but when it decides to normalize relations with Israel. Uh, given Saudi Arabia's sort of symbolic leadership role in the Muslim world, uh, how big a deal could you know Saudi signing on uh, be in perhaps spurring uh, Malaysia and Indonesia and uh, other other countries in Southeast Asia to do the same and you know to shift their position on the issue? This sounds like a very <laughs> geopolitical question. Uh, well, that's, those are very interesting developments, and uh, and it comes back to the early argument that not everything is political calculation centers on religion. Not everything. I think it's got to do with pragmatism, strategic. Well, the, the Abraham Accords, I don't know, because if you study the um, the Middle East, uh, Arab-Palestinian issue, they've always been divided. I mean, on the Palestinian land themselves itself, the Arabs states have always been divided about that. If you study, you know, um, uh, positions of the neighboring states, you know, and, 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 and what they think of, of uh, Palestine uh, historically, I mean, all those things are not necessarily religious, based on religious grounds, right? I think it's got to do with self-interest and, and personal uh, states, 
individual states' uh, interests. So I think I think there are there's more than 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 um, than just religious issues. Uh, but of course, the rivalry uh, between the, the Middle Eastern states have got to do with um, religious orientations as well. So some would argue that you know the rivalry between Saudi and its and uh, and its allies have got to do with you know, the rise of uh, Turkey that has changed significantly in terms of foreign policy lately. Um, I think there is this idea of trying to revive uh, some form of the you know, going back to the glorious days of the Ottoman Empire uh, and, and, and Turkey trying to assert its influence. And that's one reason why, um, why, why, why um, certain Gulf states are acting a certain way. We, of course, have Qatar as another important small state or important player. Uh, in the region, and of course, we have Iran as well. So, so I think I think the calculation has always been 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 pragmatic, uh, and religion, of course, shapes uh, those those rivalries. On what will happen to to Southeast Asia? Now, that's a very interesting study. It's an interesting study needs to be done because, um, I mean, what happens recently? You know, Malaysia has been undergoing its own political, I would say, crisis, quote unquote. Uh, but they have been quite silent uh, on the Abraham Accords. Indonesia too has been relatively very silent on those accords. But uh, <coughs> as you see, uh, for Malaysia, Mahathir uh, has been very close to uh, Pakistan and, and of course, uh, inching closer to, to Turkey. That's why when, when, when he organized that, uh, that Islamic forum, uh, I think it's very clear that certain powers were not comfortable, uh, but uh, but generally it's, it's good to see also. I mean, I mean, let's wait and see. Yeah, I mean, how how Malaysia will react, how Indonesia will react with this with these developments. But at this point of time, I think they are playing uh, uh, wait and and see before they actually act and and say something about those developments. Thanks, sir. thanks, Paul. Um, I think we have one time for maybe one more, one last question. Um, this question is on uh, Turkey. Um, and, you know, uh, it's, it's Turkey has this new Islamist bent, uh, and it sees Malaysia as a model. Um, it also has uh, close ties with Anwar, especially. Um, and, you know, uh, while, while his political, while Anwar has, you know, he has had his political uh, career derailed slightly, um, how, how do you see this uh, trend, this influence playing out, uh, relationship between Turkey and Malaysia? You know, Malaysia is also seen as like a developmental model for certain things like Islamic finance. Yeah, that's, those are very interesting questions of what's happening in Turkey. I mean, Turkey now wants to assert itself as an important player. It's been very, it's been sidelined for quite some time, you know, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and then the Muslim world, you know, basically do not have a strong um, state. And then Saudi Arabia became to become the center focal point. Well, at one time Egypt used to be like that too, but Saudi Arabia, because of its control over the, the holy sites, eh, became became the center. Of course, with petrodollars as well. But now Turkey is beginning to to change um, with with Erdogan. Uh, again, coming back to one of my earlier slides, if we look at the revivalist trends. Eh, there's a lot of intermixing in terms of ideology, right? And I think uh, right now um, the uh, 
the Turkish, uh, I mean, closely, though, in, now that you mentioned the, the, the name Anwar Ibrahim, I would say that, you know, the, in terms of the behavior, we can see elements of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, you know, in the, in the way they organize society and all that. Of course, they may not um, be um, uh, forthcoming in accepting uh, the Egyptian model per se, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood per se, but in terms of the way it's progressing, Islamization, we see that trend, we saw that trend coming in the last uh, few years, in fact, that uh, they're trying to organize society, trying to, to build uh, the economy uh, through Islamic, and of course, people like Anwar Ibrahim uh, would be, uh, would be, because you know, you know the history of, 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 of uh, you know, uh, some of these personalities back in the revivalist era in 1970s and 1980s, particularly the organization called ABIM, yeah? the Malaysian uh, Youth Movement. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not surprised by that. And coming back to my earlier point about you know, certain groups in the, in the Middle East, the geopolitics, Qatar is also another exporter of that, that kind of ideology. Uh, and people like Yusuf Al-Kardawi, for instance, who's based in, in Qatar, so very close to, to Anwar Ibrahim. So you're trying to connect all the dots here. Uh, uh, we see that, you know, that uh, Turkey is trying to reshape its foreign policy and tries to assert itself uh, maybe as a middle power first in, in, the, in, in, in the Islamic world and then, and then try to develop itself into a great uh, power uh, in the Islamic world, trying to tweak the discourses. Again, if you study civilizations, if you study the rise and fall of civilizations, we see that, that, that rise and fall of powers, maybe Turkey is imagining itself uh, to be uh, a power that it once used to be in the Islamic world. Okay, thank you, uh, Prof. Uh, with, with that, I think we've come to the end of uh, our session. Um, before, before I... Uh, um, do, do you have anything that you want to, like, any last words to, to wrap up? Um, not not really, but I, I just say that there's, this this is um, an issue that you know you know even though I study Southeast Asia, but uh, I mean I should I should you know I, even though our offices were next door to each other in in in, in Terrace, maybe I should, should one day we should have a. Longer conversations about the Middle Eastern impact in Southeast Asia. I think we need to do this uh, in order to understand what are the real problems that we need to tackle versus what are perhaps uh, side issues, you know, when it comes to cultural trends, cultural influences, uh, such as Arabization. But I think geopolitically is, is an important area. And of course, the rise of uh, revivalist ideas and the importation, especially when, when people from this region uh, go to the Middle East. For, for religious purposes, for educational purposes, I think the impact uh, can be quite significant. I think this is worth start, uh, a topic that is worth exploring in the future. And, and, and I think I look forward to having more conversations with scholars from MEI. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Nusharil. Uh, thanks for a really insightful discussion. Uh, and thank you to our audience for their questions. Um, as I mentioned last week, uh, our lectures are being on Zoom, one advantage is that we can reach uh, people from everywhere. So I'm very glad that we're able to do that. Um, everyone, please join us next week for our closing session of uh, this 101 series, where we will look at Central Asia uh, in relation to the Middle East. Um, till then, um, I want to wish everyone a good evening uh, and stay safe. Thanks, Prof. Bye-bye.